pray, and then uh, we'll read together this chapter. Let's pray, first of all. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to have this study. And we know, Lord, that this is a difficult book for many. Uh, but we also know, Lord, that everything in the scriptures is breathed by you and is profitable for our instruction. So we would pray that you would help us to take a book that seems in many ways culturally far away and foreign to us and bring it near uh, to our situation. And we pray this in Jesus name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Leviticus chapter one, beginning at verse one. Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall lay the young, excuse me, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests shall Offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar, that is, at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, over the wood which is on the fire. That is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall then cut into its pieces, cut it into its pieces with its head and with its suet. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water and the priest shall offer it all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire, a soothing aroma to the Lord. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar. And its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. 
Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the wood which is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Amen. Now, I have to confess that before I started studying Leviticus uh, for this series, I tended to used to think of this book somewhat in isolation rather than viewing it as the middle book of a larger narrative in the Pentateuch that runs from Genesis to Deuteronomy. Now, boys and girls, uh, you are probably familiar with the first five books. That's where we get the name Pentateuch from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You remember that I often ask you that. That's one of the questions that I ask you, you know, when I come and visit your house. Right. I often say, what are the first five books of the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And I used to often think of Leviticus kind of in isolation. Um, and one of the books that's helped me uh, lately uh, is a book by Michael Morales, uh, Who Shall Ascend the Mount of the Lord. And um, he is arguing that really Leviticus should be understood in its context. And that is that it's kind of a book in the, in the middle of a series. Many of you boys and girls are familiar with Star Wars, right? And you know that, you know, kind of the first Star Wars is actually not the first, but number four, isn't it? Or you might think about Lord of the Rings and how Lord of the Rings is really a trilogy, isn't it? Um, you, you have Fellowship of the Rings, you have the Two Towers, and, and then you have uh, the Return of the King. And you've got the Hobbit in there as well. It's kind of similar. And um, so we ought to think about Leviticus, I think, in a, in a similar fashion. Think about Leviticus is in that it has ties to Genesis and Exodus, uh, which come before it, and then Numbers and Deuteronomy, which come after it. And uh, Dr. Morales really helped me. Now, this was not new in another sense. I had Richard Pratt when I was in seminary, and he certainly gave a a literary perspective, wouldn't you say? I'm looking at Jeremy there, because Jeremy, didn't you have Richard Pratt too? Yeah. That uh, Dr. Pratt gives a literary perspective, um, you know, on the Old Testament, and it, it is helpful. But uh, either I forgot, if Pratt taught me, I <laughs> forgot it. But Morales certainly helped me to understand not just the literary perspective, but making a case for an integrated understanding of the Pentateuch. Um, now, what do all do I mean by that? Well, we need to ask ourselves, why is Leviticus, for example, the third book in the Bible? I bet you hadn't thought about that, have you? What's the purpose of being the third book here? Why? Why now? Why after Genesis and Exodus? Why before Numbers and Deuteronomy? What what is the relationship there? One of the things that um, is helpful to understand is, is that there is a story, a redemptive historical story that God is telling in the Pentateuch that runs from Genesis, the first book to the last book, the fifth book. Of the Pentateuch and that Leviticus is placed intentionally in the middle of that narrative to answer important theological questions that are raised by the story or the narrative that runs in Genesis, Exodus, and then uh, again in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And that the, that the book of Leviticus does have 
a literary function, much like the other books do. Well, let me get more specific because you might be thinking I'm still not getting it. Let's take a look at what surrounds Leviticus and see if this makes more sense. Genesis, where do we begin? We begin in the beginning with creation. God makes all things in the space of six days and all very good. And what is the center of that created universe? What's the most important part of that universe that God has created? Well, it's the garden, isn't it? That's the most significant part theologically. You say, I think it's the sun. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'll grant you scientifically that, yes, the sun's very important and, and without it, you know, the, it goes bad. But theologically, the sun's not the center of the universe. OK. The garden theologically is the center of the universe. I'm not talking scientifically. I'm talking theologically. What is the most important part of the universe? It's the garden. And why? Well, because that's the sanctuary where God makes himself known to man. He puts man in the garden and there gives him dominion as signified by the naming of the animals. But what do we read in Genesis? That God would come in into the cool of the garden and he would commune with Adam and Eve. He would commune, have fellowship with them. Now, you know the story in Genesis 3. Sin, having eaten of the tree of which God said you shall not eat, breaks that communion with God. Sin enters into the picture now, and now God has to, what, drive Adam and Eve, he has to drive man, male and female, out of the, out of the sanctuary. They may not be in the sanctuary with God anymore. And what is God going to do to see to it that they never come back in? He's going to put a cherubim there and with a flaming sword. Now, this becomes important later when we when we have the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus and later the temple, because what is it? What is the inner room? Well, it's the Holy of Holies. It's the sanctuary. And what do we find guarding the sanctuary? We find the cherubim. We have cherubim that are uh, as a part of the veil. Separating the Holy of Holies. And we have the cherubim in the inner sanctuary hovering over the mercy seat, don't we? And so you have this picture uh, of the sanctuary initially being the garden. Now having lost that, they're expelled from the garden. In fact, uh, it was interesting. uh, Morales even believes that the altar of God was placed just outside the garden after Adam and Eve were expelled, you know, Cain and Abel, when they offered their sacrifices, where did they offer those sacrifices? And, and Morales posits that the offering of Cain and Abel is right outside the entrance of the garden. And that that, that typology is picked up in the tabernacle, that the offerings that are made that we just read about here in Leviticus one, where are these offerings made? Well, it, it tells us here, doesn't it? It says that it's right in front of the offering. It says he shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So that we see that in order to get into the sanctuary, one must go by way of the altar. To put it another way, you have to go by way of the sacrifice if you are to enter into the Holy of Holies. I hope you can see redemptive historically where this goes and how it's connected to us. 
We go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that what you see here in the book of Leviticus is an explanation of how the people of God come back into communion with God. That Genesis says that sin has separated us. And as you go through Genesis, what do we find? We find that later, you know, you have the judgment of God in the days of Noah with the flood and that God through the waters of baptism, through the flood and the ark, you find the people of God are rescued. And from that, uh, we have the calling of Abram And, and God makes a covenant with Abram. And what does he do? He brings him into the land. And he says, this is the land that's going to be the holy land. And you and your descendants, including all those who not only, you know, are are biologically related to you, but as Paul says, who are spiritually related to you by faith. Remember, Paul says in Galatians that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the descendants of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. Uh, that, that, That we spiritually belong to this covenant. So anyway, the uh, the promise, the land, the land is given as a promise to Abraham and his descendants. But how does Genesis end? Genesis ends kind of strangely in that Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, dies in Egypt, doesn't he? What about the covenant? What about the land? What about the sanctuary? God's people are left in Egypt and that even Joseph at the end of Genesis dies And has to have his family promise him that they will carry his bones from Egypt into the promised land when the people of God finally enter the land of promise. So you have this picture here of communion with God, communion lost. And communion typologically beginning to be restored through the sacrifice. The covenant is made, but the people are where? Well, in Exodus, we find at the beginning, they forget about Joseph, don't they? And so they find themselves for a period of 450 years enslaved in Egypt, far away from seemingly the promises of God, cut off from the sanctuary until God does what? He raises up the mediator, Moses, and calls him from the bush, sends him. And here again, God brings his people out of Egypt, out of the world, much like he called Abram, their first father, out of the land of the Chaldees, out of Ur. And what does he do? He brings them into the land. And he does so by how? By way of water again, through the baptism, the Red Sea. And, and you see this again, don't you? you? You know, the people of God, when they eventually get into the promised land, they come through the rivers of the Jordan. And, and so you see these various themes being recapitulated as you go through the Pentateuch. And, of course, the New Testament says that we are brought uh, through the waters of baptism. Uh, you know, Peter even says that, you know, that corresponding to the those waters through which the people of God were brought through. So now you have been baptized, you know, in Christ Jesus. So they leave Egypt. God redeems them, brings them out of the land of slavery. And then what does the Lord do? He brings them to Sinai. 
And Moses goes up on the mountain and God gives the people of God two things. One, the law summarized in the Ten Commandments. But here's the other thing God gives. He gives the tabernacle. The instructions for the for the construction of the tabernacle are given to Moses. Remember, Moses receives the law. They break the law. They have the apostasy with the golden calf. Moses goes back up, gets the law again, but also the, the instructions uh, for the tabernacle. And that, that so that what we find here is the tabernacle is constructed at the end of Exodus. Where are we at the end of Exodus? We find that they've uh, built the tabernacle according to the pattern given to Moses, right? And they have the dedication of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. But interestingly, what happens in verse 34 at the end of Exodus chapter 40, it says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is, the tabernacle is dedicated, but here's the problem. The mediator can't get in to the tabernacle. The, so Exodus ends, you, and in many ways, on a high note, the construction of the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord coming down. But there's still this fundamental problem. Is that who's going to enter into the Holy of Holies? And How? And this is where Leviticus comes into play, is that Leviticus is a book that explains for us the way in which the mediator is allowed to go into the tabernacle. Does that make sense? Now, Morales goes so far as to say that Leviticus 16 is the fulcrum of the of the book of Leviticus, meaning this is kind of a turning point that that everything is leading to the day of atonement in Leviticus 16. And that from that, and I don't know, I'm still studying the matter, so I don't, but I'm just letting you know what I've learned so far. And, that, and then after the Day of Atonement, what do we have? It's kind of the downhill all the way to the Promised Land. That they're, that, that, they, that they're led up to Sinai, they build the tabernacle, they have the Day of Atonement where the sins of, of the nation of Israel are atoned for and forgiven, and then they begin their journey to the promised land. And and so you have numbers and, you know, you have things like Korah's rebellion, you know, against the Levitical institution here that is set forth for us in this book that we're studying now. And you have uh, the people of God being brought up to the edge of the River Jordan by the time you get to Deuteronomy, waiting to go through the waters into the land here. So um, Leviticus is answering an important theological question within a greater narrative. And that is, how do the people of God enter into the presence of God? How do we approach a holy God as sinners? And that this book is telling a story of how God leads his people back into communion with him. And he does so by way of the giving of the law but also the tabernacle. The law itself cannot save the people. The people cannot approach God simply by way of the moral law and keeping of the law. The law is important, but the law cannot justify. The law cannot save them. What is it that 
can save them. Only the sanctuary, the tabernacle, and the offerings can lead us into the promised land, into the communion with God. And you see that, too, by the end of Deuteronomy, and you move into Joshua, what's the story? The story is they bring the tabern- uh, excuse me, they bring the Ark of the Covenant, which is what? That's the centerpiece of the Holy of Holies, right? And they stand in the middle of the Jordan, and they are able to come into the promised land with the Jordan River being stopped by the Ark of the Covenant standing in the middle. They're again showing that the way, the entrance in to the land and to the uh, communion with God would always be by the mercy seat and by the sacrifice. Now, what I want to do with the remainder of our time here is just quickly give you three thoughts from Leviticus chapter one. Three thoughts from Leviticus one. Number one, the whole burnt offering is a type of Christ. The whole burnt offering is a type of Christ. That's number one. Number two, that all classes of men may draw near to God through this Christ. All classes of men may draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And then number three, the substitutionary atonement of Christ is the very heart of the gospel. The substitutionary atonement. Of Christ is the very heart of the gospel. Let me quickly go over these three points. First of all, the offering as a type of Christ. Well, let's look, first of all, at verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect or defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. And then look at verse 10. But if his, but if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. Notice here that there are two qualifications for these offerings, whether it be from the herd or from the flock. Number one, that it be a male. And number two, that there be a perfection to it. They may, may not offer a female And they may not offer an animal that has some kind of physical defect in it. The priest must inspect the animal to make certain it qualifies as an offering for the worshiper. Uh, You can see how this has practical implications. Another commentator uh, noted, and I forgot which commentator it was. Sorry, I forgot his name. I'll, I'll get it to you next week, but... Um, He says, you know, this has a temptation, uh, you know, for both the priest and for the worshiper. The the priest may be tempted to not want to create any frown and overlook a defect in the animal. Uh, It may cause somebody who knows that there's a weakness with this animal uh, to be used. And so we see that it's important in our worship that uh, we give of our best. Uh, to God. Now, the most important picture, though, is what it says about Christ, not about us. And that is this, that God would send the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The blood of these animals, whether from the herd or the flock or the birds, could never atone for sin in and of themselves. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is the Lamb of God. And that's what makes John the Baptist's words so pregnant with meaning. A good Jew, his ears should have picked up when John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb. That should have meant a lot to the nation of Israel for somebody to be given that kind of title. That was an Isaiah 53 title given to Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Christ alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He, being the God-man, makes atonement for us. These animal sacrifices are but a prefigure. They are but a theological type whereby they point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, secondly... Through Jesus Christ, we see that all types and classes of men may approach the Lord. You'll notice there are three different types of offerings here. Verse two is from the herd, meaning like an ox, a large animal. Verse 10 is from the flock, like a sheep or goat. And then the third sacrifice are from the birds. Verse 14 the young pigeon or dove. Now, why these three different types of burnt offerings? Why doesn't God have only one type of burnt offering? Well, the commentators seem to suggest that because there's a different cost to these animals. And commentators seem to suggest that what it means is that the way to God is open to all men, no matter their class or distinction. The herd, you have to understand, would be the most expensive offering. It's the ox. That, that's, you, that's like buying a caterpillar, you know, tractor. Okay, it's, 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 it does a lot of work. That's a huge capitalist investment. Okay, a sheep, just kind of middle of the road animal. You can make some money on it. You can't make as much as you can with an ox. Okay, you can make a whole lot more money with an ox than you can with a sheep. Less investment and of less value. And then the third are, are, the, are the birds. That would be the uh, least costly sacrifice. So that we see that even those on very tight and fixed budgets could make the offering, the widow. Or as we see in the Gospel of Luke, couples that are newly married, just getting started, where they're pinching pennies, um, Joseph and Mary, okay, what kind of offering do they make? When they come into the temple to dedicate the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we're told that they offer the offering of the of the of the birds there. So what it says is that all types of people and all types of circumstances and conditions may draw near to God. God offers himself freely to all men. This is the free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the, the whosoever, if you will, of John three sixteen. Whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. God uh, is, is a God who makes no distinction among men so long as they will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing I'm going to close here with this is that we also see that the substitutionary atonement is at the heart of. Of this gospel. The book of Hebrews tells us that without blood, there is no remission of sin. Look with me at verse four. 
And we'll take this as a sample, though it's repeated when they get to the flock as well. But just look at verse four. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. Now, the Hebrew word for uh, lay his hand, that a little bit stronger in the Hebrew than it translates to us in the English. Um, it, it would mean to lay with a little bit of, um, shall we say, pressure. So the idea is a leaning into the animal, leaning into the, the innocent one. And, and what is this leaning into it? Now, here again, commentators aren't wholly in agreement. I have tended to think that it signifies imputation. Not every commentator follows that that line of thinking. Some emphasize the sense of the dedication of the innocent one for the sacrifice. Um, I tend to think of it uh, um, as as an imputation to the innocent one. But um, I, I don't know. I'm going to keep looking as we go through this. I'm going to just keep thinking about it and looking at it. But um, but the, clearly here, though, what we see is what the innocent one be, becomes the victim and that he takes the place of the worshiper and that the whole of the animal is consumed in the offering. And there's various preparations that they have to make according to the animal uh, that's in view, and, and there are a lot of details here uh, in this legislation about it. But the sum of it is that the whole of the animal is consumed. Some of the parts may have to be washed. Um, there's different ways in which, you know, sometimes they're on the north side of the altar, sometimes they're on the east side of the altar. But in each of these cases here, uh, the entire animal is offered up to God, and it is solely unto God. The worshiper. Uh, does not partake of this animal. Later, we're going to see offerings where the priest may eat of it or the um, the worshiper may eat of it, but not with the whole burnt offering. So in some ways that this is one of the best expressions of the gospel in the Old Testament here. The idea is that Jesus Christ is consumed in the wrath of God for sinners. Jesus, the innocent one, the sinless one, The Lamb of God, holy, blameless and upright, is the one in on whom we lean on. We press our hands upon his head, whether that be to consecrate him as the innocent one or whether it be the idea of imputation to the innocent one. Christ becomes the sacrifice. And that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ did indeed bear the guilt of our sins. Judicially, Christ was punished for you and for me. Our transgressions by commission and omission were all laid on Jesus Christ. Our works pay for nothing. All of our sins are atoned for only in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. His whole life is a sacrifice for us. Not just people tend to think of Christ's. Uh, sacrifice in terms of its passive obedience. You've got to remember the, the act of obedience, that he's the, he is without defect. And that meant from the time he's conceived to the time he goes to the cross, uh, he is without any defect in word, thought, or deed. Uh, holy, pure, blameless, undefiled, as Hebrews says, 
and that he bears the weight of our sin and also the law's just punishment for that sin, including the wrath of God. Now, that, I think, is pictured uh, here by fire. The altar, remember, is a place of burning, boys and girls. So they, so they arrange the wood. Remember, that the, the reason the altar is also so important, we'll see this when we get to Leviticus chapter 10, um, is that the fire comes from above. You know, it's, if God initially you know, it ignites the altar. It, it was the job of the priest to keep the fire going. And even when they had to pack up and move, they had to keep some of the fire that was taken from the altar and transport it with them. So when they set the, you know, the tabernacle back up, the fire that's used is the same essential fire that, that they started with. This is why, you know, when we get to Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 and they bring a strange fire and God consumes them. Well, it's very important because this is the fire of God's judgment that he himself brings. It's not man bringing it to God, but God bringing the fire down and consuming the, the sacrifice, which is what God the Father did with Christ. The Father poured out his wrath, his judgment on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is consumed, body and soul, if you will. Under the wrath and judgment of God, he's paying the equivalent of eternal punishment as he is dying on that cross. And there is a sense in which Christ is, is consumed in that judgment. Only to be raised, though, miraculously the third day. And that's, that's one aspect here that you don't see, is it? The animal that is consumed on this offering never comes back, does it? But here we see that the sacrifice of Christ is sufficient once and forever. In that the one who was offered on that cross was vindicated, was raised from the dead. And now sits at the right hand of God. For us to approach God through him. Amen.